Ten years ago, there was an interesting study at Oxford University, and it involved patients with chronic arthritis in their arm, so arm pain. The experiment involved a pair of binoculars for each subject, and they were asked to move their arm in painful ways while observing their arm through the binoculars. And the first part of the experiment, the subjects look at uh, their arm through the ordinary way you would look through binoculars, so everything looks larger. And then they would report their pain levels, and it turned out that their pain levels increased. Then the second part of this experiment involved the reverse end of binoculars. So they're asked to perform this set of movements again while looking out the other end. And when you look through the reverse end of the binoculars, everything looks smaller and farther away. And so after performing that uh, function of the, of the experiment, the subjects reported that their pain was 50% less on average. But it wasn't just a mental phenomenon that their, their pain had reduced or, or increased based on their perception. There was also a corresponding change in the swelling and inflammation from the arthritis depending on how they were observing their pain. So this tells us something very mysterious, that uh, pain isn't so objective as we think it is. It's some kind of signal from the brain that's trying to get our attention. We could think of it as an amplifier, and there's a volume control. And through mindfulness and mindful strategies, we can learn how to manage that amplifier a little bit better. And so that's what we'll talk about today. Spend a little time introducing mindfulness again, talk about how it impacts our perception and experience of pain. So mindfulness is a way of paying attention in the present moment, very purposefully and non-judgmentally. And so this can be practiced formally or informally. Formally means that I could have a set time and place where I do a mindful activity like meditation or yoga or tai chi or whatever technique you learn or you're familiar with. There's also an informal practice of mindfulness, and that is when we bring more awareness to whatever we're doing in the present moment and try to be more non-judgmental and accepting. So that could be driving, talking, eating, watching television. If you think about all these normal activities, we can do all of these very unmindfully while thinking about other things while fantasizing, worrying, ruminating. And research shows that more than half of our day, more than 50% of our time is spent lost in thought, which means we have something going on in our mind, but we don't know that we have something going on in our mind. And therefore, we're not paying as much attention to the present moment as we could be. And it probably is uh, contributing to unhappiness and more suffering. If you think about it, it's very difficult to find any kind of happiness by being lost in thought. Even if we're thinking about something pleasant, if we're thinking about something pleasant from our past, that implies that I don't have it now. So there's not any kind of uh, intrinsic happiness in that. And if I was thinking about something that could be so much better in the future, while that that fantasy might seem pleasant, it can't really produce happiness because it ultimately means I don't have that right now. So the only way people can actually genuinely feel a sense of 
deeper satisfaction and happiness is if they bring their full awareness to whatever they're doing and start to notice things in the present moment and get relief from that, uh, that train that takes us to the past and the future and makes us suffer more than we need to. Mindfulness has a couple of core qualities that we'll review. It involves a type of awareness that's open, curious, and flexible. Open means that we can get better at being willing to look at what's there. And in the case of pain, it's something that we really want to turn away from. But the desire to get away from pain actually increases suffering. The resistance to our experience and the resistance to the present moment creates a lot of turmoil and a lot of anxiety. Then curiosity. Curiosity means not only you're willing to look at what's there in the present moment, but you're interested. You're actively interested so that you can acquire more and more insight. So it's not just about looking, it's about looking with intent. And then thirdly, flexibility. Our awareness is like a flashlight. We can't see all things at all times. We don't have eyes in the back of our head. But we can decide how we want to move this flashlight around and where we want to point it. And in the case of pain, pain has a lot of different elements to it. Pain is sometimes sharp, sometimes dull. It might be in one part of our body, but not the other. So with our awareness and the flashlight of our awareness, we can be flexible with how we direct what we want to focus on. And by focusing on different aspects of our pain, it actually changes the amplification or the signal of our pain. So I want to share with you three ways to become more mindful in daily life. Keep in mind these three things, intention, non-judgment, and acceptance. Intention means to try to be more purposeful with what you're doing. So we mentioned that 50% of our uh, time is spent distracted. So distraction is the normal way that the mind will want to be. By bringing our awareness back from distraction to whatever we're doing, you strengthen your powers of focus and concentration. This is called metacognition or meta-attention to be able to be aware that you're not paying attention, to catch it. That's called meta-attention, to know where your attention is. Instead of that being 50% of the time, try to increase it 60, 70, 80% of the time until you're more and more aware of what your mind is doing. And this is very powerful because you can start to realize that there are certain tendencies in the mind and they're not necessarily our choice even. We talk about thinking as if it's our choice, but um, if it was our choice how to think, we would just think good all the time. I don't think people want negative thoughts to come and to dominate their mind, which means thoughts happen almost in the way that weather happens. And if we can pay attention to weather from a safe space, it's not so disturbing. To sit and watch a lightning storm or to watch a weather pattern pass through can actually be soothing. But it requires that we're not caught up in the storm. And if we can observe our own mind and become conscious of our thoughts, we can experience that same kind of relief. Less identification with our thoughts. 
And when we see that we have thoughts, but we're not our thoughts, we already start to get relief and can reduce our suffering. So that's a little bit about intention and trying to remember to be purposeful with your awareness. And because it's hard, it's good to have a formal practice so that you can improve. Having a formal practice of intention and mindfulness is like going to the gym. We could be in good shape if we're just normally active people, but most of us struggle with that. So it can be good to actually designate time where we're going to move and lift weights and whatever. And in the same way that our muscles get stronger through straining them, our mind will get stronger and our attention will get stronger by bringing it back from distraction. Bringing our mind back from distraction is literally like flexing the muscle of the mind. And just because people get distracted has no meaning whatsoever on whether or not a person could be mindful. So many people tell me, I don't know if I could get good at meditation or mindfulness because I can't focus. That'd be like somebody saying, I don't know if I'm cut out for exercise because every time I, I try to run, I get tired. Or every time I lift weights, I get sore. <laughs> That's normal. It's normal for the mind to wander and get distracted. Just like walking a dog, the dog is going to wander around. And by pulling it back uh, and realigning it, it gets better and better at staying uh, alongside you. And our mind will do the same thing. The more we gently redirect it, every time we catch it lost in thought, it can stay with you longer and longer. And when you can focus better and concentrate more, we can accomplish so much. Secondly is non-judgment. One of the things that really increases our suffering is the way that we interpret what's happening to us. That's why there's a saying in mindfulness, it's not what happens to you, but what you tell yourself about what happens to you that really determines the quality of your experience. So judgment is a type of label or evaluative statement about yourself or others or your experience or your life. Like, this is awful, this is terrible, um, I'm ugly, I'm stupid. And so with a, with a mindful attitude, we try to see things as they are and even look for the language to factually describe our situations. That's why people say it is what it is. But we need to find the language to describe what it is. It is a flat tire uh, and there is no spare. That, that's factual. That I have a flat tire and my day is going to suck and this is the story of my life and nothing good ever happens to me, that's all judgment. But it can certainly increase your suffering. Somebody cuts you off on the road and that is what it is. This car came very close, this person didn't see me or this person um, moved into my lane and didn't know I was there. Those are all facts. But that that person's an idiot or a moron, I, I don't know. I don't know their intentions. I don't know their purpose. I don't know their state of mind. But I do know some facts that this car is coming at me or this car is too close and I'm going to make a choice. I'm going to speed up, honk the horn or whatever it is I need to do to respond wisely. And that's how non-judgment can help us. It can help us actually respond to the situation and move on. Something that happens over a course of a few seconds can really dominate people's consciousness when they judge it and they come up with all kinds of interpretations. And we can hold on to that experience. Even hours after getting cut off on the road, a person could still be angry and still talking about it. What's wrong? Oh, crazy drivers on the road. 
so angry. So non-judgment is important to see things as they are, including our body and whatever's going on in the body with pain. And then thirdly, acceptance. Acceptance means non-resistance. And we think of acceptance oftentimes, especially for me working in the clinical settings, as letting go and forgiving. But acceptance actually means receiving. If you think about accepting a gift, it would mean take the gift. So acceptance comes from a Latin word, which was a compound word, ad capere, which meant to receive, to take. So acceptance has two parts. It does include letting go, but it also means receiving on the front end. So allowing things that are to be, and when they're finished, allowing them to go. Really like a wave in the, in the ocean. And that's why we teach in, uh, in therapeutic interventions, teach patients to ride the wave of experience. Every experience has a beginning, a peak, experience and then a uh, cresting and release and dissipation. But we do a couple things to interrupt that cycle. We try to not let things begin. We suppress feelings, thoughts, experiences. And we also uh, hold on to things after they're finished. I mean, think about a feeling like guilt. Guilt rises in us, it shows us, hey, this is not the way I want to live, or this is out of character for me, and I know what I want to do different, or if I find myself in that situation again, how I would do things differently. And, and then it could be complete, but the person doesn't let it go. They keep reliving it and, and reintroducing the feeling and criticizing themselves and judging themselves, thereby holding on to the feeling much longer than they need to. So we both stop the beginning of an experience and we also stop the end of it. And those are forms of resistance and non-acceptance. And this connects to pain because pain becomes suffering depending on our non-acceptance. There's an equation, suffering equals pain times resistance. Pain is not necessarily suffering. When people are exercising or working out or when I'm playing basketball, there's pain. You're running and running and running. Your body has different types of pains. But I wouldn't say, gosh, I'm suffering today in this, in this exercise. So pain itself does not connotate suffering. There has to be pain and it needs to be amplified by our resistance to it for there to be an emotional reaction. And so if there's no resistance, if we totally accept whatever's going on, then the suffering's gonna be zero because zero times anything is zero. So even if there's a lot of pain, if we're totally at peace with it, then the suffering could be nil. And you may have seen this or encountered this at times in life when uh, a, a person is suffering from a terminal illness, fighting, 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 and then eventually accepting and knowing that this is, this is what it is. So now I'm not gonna try to su suppress this anymore or fight this, I'm just going to be at peace with it. And even though there's still pain associated with the illness, a person could look peaceful and their suffering could really come down. So that's how the mindful acceptance really connects to the re reduction of suffering. 
Intention, non-judgment, and acceptance would be how to cultivate this in daily life. Now I'd like to speak a little bit more about pain. Pain is a signal in the body, and as demonstrated from that uh, binocular experiment, it is subjective. And it depends on a few things. It depends on mood, attention, and expectancy. So I'd like to talk about each one briefly. Mood means our emotional condition. If we're in a bad mood, then our pain can easily be amplified. When somebody is really sad or depressed, every little ache and pain can seem much louder, including the circumstances that are unpleasant. Those can seem much louder, much more triggering. If a person is happy and content or joyful, then pain and its signal can be turned down. Even though there may be a problem in the body, if a person is in a great mood, it may not be as loud to them. And we can change our mood depending on our choices, our decisions, and how we plan our life and how we make time for certain activities. And by practicing mindfulness, we can put ourselves in a calmer mood because deep breathing and mindfulness practices increase relaxation and activate mechanisms in the brain and in the body to promote relaxation. Secondly is attention. I have to actually be paying attention to my pain or my injury to truly feel it. If I'm sound asleep, I probably don't feel any pain, especially if I'm not dreaming. And if I'm not aware of my injury or my pain because I'm so focused on something else, some work or a movie, or I'm in the flow, then I probably don't feel the pain very much. I remember watching a Cowboys football game some years back, and in that game, the quarterback at the time, Tony Romo, had an injury, and uh, later it was reported that he broke a rib and punctured his lung. And he said he didn't feel any pain until the clock hit zero. As soon as the clock hit zero, boom, he knew something was seriously wrong. So why did he not feel pain? Because he was so hyper-focused on finishing the game and beating the opponent that there was no awareness going inward. All his awareness was outward, which means that depending on where we're focusing, that's going to have an effect. And that's why that's, that, uh, that effect was created with the binoculars. Focusing on your pain in a big way, it gets bigger. When you're focusing on your pain from a long distance, well, then the brain makes it seem as though this signal should be much smaller. If my arm feels like it's and looks like it's 20 feet away from me, well, then my pain should not be as intense as it was. And the brain can actually turn down that, that volume, that amplifier. And then the last one is expectancy. Expectancy means what we think is going to happen with our pain. So let me tell you an interesting experiment. Uh, with a group of pain patients, uh, the researchers decided to take a large group of, of these subjects and divide them into three categories. And for each group, group A, group B, group C, they would get an opiate pain medication, but they would be told something different. So each group, A, B, and C, is going to get the same medication in the same dose for the same pain. 
Group A is told, this is really gonna help your pain. You're gonna feel a lot better. Group B is told, nothing. And then the third group is told, this isn't gonna help you at all with your pain, <laughs> but it'll help with something else, like your digestion or something like that. So what do you think happens? Well, group A gets the most relief. They were told that this will help you. And group B gets second most relief, but not as much as group A. And group C gets no relief. Group C was told this is not going to help you, but please take this. So they're all doing the exact same thing, but they all come out, each three groups, with different pain levels. So what does that tell us? It tells us that pain is very subjective and, and it's affected by mood, attention, and what we expect. That's called uh, placebo and nocebo. Placebo means I think this is going to happen and I strongly believe that and therefore we'll get some kind of uh, result from that. And nocebo means I don't think something's going to happen and even if it could help me, it doesn't because I so strongly believe that it can't do anything. And that's sort of how people get held back in recovery sometimes with the strong belief that this can't help me. So this is all about the power of belief. And once there's a belief, there's a certain bias in the mind called the confirmation bias. Confirmation bias means whatever we believe, we tend to reinforce. It is not our instinct to try to break down our beliefs. It's our instinct to strengthen them. And so we see this play out in how people form communities around religious beliefs and political beliefs and where they get their information from. And usually it's from a source that is agreeable, which is fine in terms of fellowship and connecting socially. But what if the belief is, my life sucks? Then you start to go to the church of a sucky life because you want to find everything that reinforces that. So I would like to do a, an experiment with you really quick. I'm going to write down a couple numbers as part of a pattern, the beginning of a sequence of numbers. And I'll read them to you. It's two, four, and six. So you probably have an idea of what this pattern could be. But could anybody guess the next number? Eight fits the pattern. How about the next one? 10 fits the pattern. 12 also fits the pattern. Mind you, you can guess any number. Next number? 16 fits the pattern. 14 fits, does not fit the pattern. So if 16 can be the next number, then that means what we believed, which was what? That it's increasing by two means it's not true if 16 could be the next one. So now that we know it's the pattern is not that it has to increase by two, it's something else. What else can you guess? 20 fits the pattern. 25 fits. That's it. It's just an increase in numbers. Uh, two, four, six fit a pattern. If I didn't say you could guess anything, we might have just gone on just adding twos and we would continue to get evidence for that belief, which is a wrong belief. Uh, but if we don't try to break it down and and this is something that happens in life, 
We have beliefs about ourselves and others, and we just keep adding twos, so to speak, instead of trying to find out how it's wrong. It took us a while before anyone would guess a number that would be told that doesn't fit. But that's the only way we can get information. Because if I start out going, well, what about negative five? And I said, that fits the rule. Then it shatters our original belief. But it'll take people so long before they would test their beliefs in that way. Um, and this is really important, especially when it pertains to the experience of our life and our feelings and our pain. The narratives that we create around our pain and knowing that the confirmation bias is a real thing, then we're going to reinforce that and keep feeding that belief. So the only way around this really is to be aware that we have beliefs and to be scientific about it, to really test that hypothesis, to treat any belief as a hypothesis, which means I can also ask, how could this be wrong? I think I can never be happy now that I have this back injury. Yeah, but how could that maybe not be true? What are the ways in which I still could be happy? Because every type of pain limits us in some way. And if we focus on the limitation, then of course we're going to suffer more. But there's always limitations and we're not always focused on them. We're limited as human beings compared to other animals. We can't fly. But we don't spend all day thinking about how unlucky we are to not be able to fly. And when we do, you know, we may feel a little bit frustrated. We can't swim uh, as fast as sea animals. We can't breathe underwater like fish. We can't run very fast. Our exteriors are not very tough, like armadillos and, and animals with shells. So what do we have? All we have really is reason and intellect. And with that alone, as vulnerable as a human being is, Human beings are, have dominated the planet. So it's important to use that faculty to challenge our beliefs, to study our beliefs and to investigate them and simply challenge them, especially when they pertain to the way we feel about ourselves, our pain, the narratives that we've created about our life based on past experiences. I could have three failed relationships and certainly have some evidence to conclude I'm unlovable. But just because there's a string of failed relationships doesn't mean that that belief is true. But I might be inclined with that belief to change the way I engage and to avoid certain opportunities because of my strong belief. And by looking for only evidence that will reinforce it, it holds me back in certain ways. So that's called the confirmation bias, and uh, that's how it's connected to what we expect is going to happen. Mood, attention, and expectancy are what affect the levels of pain. And to bring more mindfulness, mindful awareness to our experience with pain, let's understand what pain is a little bit deeper. Three aspects. Pain has sensations, in the body, physical sensations. Secondly, it has a emotional quality, how you feel about that sensation or that condition in the body. And thirdly, what it means, what it means socially, 
what it means in the bigger picture of your life. And that meaning could be about the past or the future. So let's just talk about each one briefly. Sensations. Pain is not just pain. Pain could be tightness, tingling, heat, tension. So there's lots of different aspects to pain. And only through mindful awareness can we know what is the sensation. So one of the ways to investigate your pain is to get it down to raw data. Take some time to mindfully investigate and throw out the word pain and find new language to describe what it is. That alone may reveal new insights about how to care for yourself and how limited you actually are by whatever is happening. Secondly, emotion. Emotion is where suffering happens. I already said we have physical pain all the time. In fact, 76 million Americans uh, feel pain for more than 24 hours throughout the year. That's pretty high, one in four people. Three million Americans have pain ongoing for at least three months throughout the year. Chronic pain. So this is something that most of us are familiar with or will be familiar with. So the second part, emotion, has to do with the suffering. Simply ask yourself when you're in pain, how do I feel about my pain? Maybe you're sad. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're ashamed. Maybe you're embarrassed. Maybe you feel guilty. So there's lots of different feelings that build around the pain. And when we know what that is, there are ways to treat the emotion. Through meditation, through deep breathing, emotions can subside. Mindfulness training has been shown to reduce all kinds of emotions, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the person's physical condition. So that's an important step in the investigation. What do I feel? And thirdly, what does it mean to me? This is how the suffering increases even more. Does the meaning of my pain have something to do with the past? For example, a year and a half ago, I um, fractured a bone in my foot and tore a ligament playing basketball. I remember that morning, it was a Saturday morning, I debated for a while before I left the house about whether or not to go play basketball and see some friends or go for a walk at the forest preserve. And ultimately I decided it would be better to go to the gym, play some hoops. After I broke my foot, what do you think was going through my mind? Why did I do that? Why didn't I just follow my instinct and go for a walk? And I noticed that there was a lot of suffering during that debate in my mind and that, that self-criticism. When I became aware of my self-anger and the meaning of this pain, this meant that if I'd done something different in the past, my life would be so much better. And that's where I stopped it. That's where I was able to interrupt my suffering. Because that's not true. I have no idea what would have happened to me if I went to the park instead. I don't even know that I wouldn't have ended up with a broken foot. The truth is, I just don't know. All I would know is that I wouldn't have gone to the gym. And it's not even an option anymore. So when I let go of that criticism about my past and just came back to the present moment, the reality is my foot is broken now, what do I need to do? Get it taken care of, get it healed, move forward. My suffering came down. 
Um, but sometimes the meaning has a lot more to do with the future. Even the simple pain of a, of a headache or the intense pain of a migraine tells somebody something about the future pretty quickly. Oh my God, how long am I going to be dealing with this? Is this going to be one of those like days-long migraines? If so, I can't take that. Even before the future has played out, we're already living in the future and suffering the future. I'm sure if that same kind of pain came to a person and they knew for sure, this is just going to last a minute, so just bear with it, their suffering would probably be pretty low. That's why people suffer so much uh, with panic attacks too, because when you're having a panic attack, it doesn't feel like it's going to be brief. It feels like this could go on forever or this could kill me. But to really observe it would reveal that most of them are less than a half hour in length. But when you're in a lot of pain and a lot of suffering, time just opens up. It just seems like this is uh, unbearable. But if we come back to the present moment, well, this is what it is right now, what can I do? And I don't know about the future, just like I didn't know about the past with my foot. So I had to come back from the past. So there's nothing I can do about that. And I don't even know that my thoughts and meaning that I was attributing to the past are even true. And that's the same with the future. I don't know how long this is going to last, so there's no point in really worrying about that. If I can bring my awareness back to the present moment, and do my best to take care of myself in the present, I can reduce my suffering. So those are the three questions to ask yourself. What is it, the pain? And get down to raw data. Because once I even use the word pain, it has so much baggage that I can immediately start to suffer in all different kinds of ways. So when you practice mindful awareness with pain, Remove the word pain for a little bit and try to find out the way you could describe the raw experience. Tingling, tightness, warmth, sharp, dull, here, there, and so on. And then ask yourself, what is my emotional experience? Am I angry about this? Am I sad about this? Am I worried? Am I confused? Well, I mean, imagine having a pain and you have no clue what it means or why it's there. So there'd probably be some confusion about the pain, which increases suffering. So there are ways to treat the emotional condition. And then finally, what does it mean to you? And what does it mean to you uh, in terms of the past or the future and also for your social life? And for the future, it's probably going to seem like it limits us in some way. But like I said before, we're limited as human beings. We don't obsess over it, ordinarily. We don't obsess over our inability to fly. But if everyone could fly and suddenly you could not, then we'd probably suffer a lot. I give this example to a lot of people that we have two arms. But if I came to know everybody had four arms except me, I could probably suffer a lot, even though I'm exactly the same as I've always been. But knowing that I'm limited, could make me really suffer. I'm not limited by two arms in my mind because I don't think about having more arms. But if I knew that I could, and I did, and I lost it, that could create a lot of suffering. So my point here is we are always limited. The choice is what do you pay attention to though? Do you pay attention to how you're limited or do you pay attention to what's possible still? And in every 
era of history, civilizations were limited, but still they made things. Egyptians made pyramids, Mayans made temples, Romans, the Greeks, made massive structures, beautiful structures. So throughout history, humans are making things, making, creating. And in every civilization, they're limited. They don't have what the next civilization is going to have. But they're focused on what they can do. And so they do something, and they still end up making something exquisite. And that's the point with pain. Yes, pain and injury and accidents may limit you in some way. And the pain of aging will always limit us in some way. But there will always be another way in which we're not limited. So we need to use our awareness to redirect flexibly towards what is very possible for us and what can still be very fulfilling. Because when we do feel fulfilled in life, it's not because we can do anything. It just means we're doing something and that something is meaningful and rewarding.